Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. My name is Todd McLaughlin, and I will be your host. If you would like to learn more about our upcoming live stream yoga classes, workshops, teacher trainings, and or our online yoga studio, please visit us at nativeyogacenter.com. Thank you. Sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, how are you doing? Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Native Yoga Toddcast. Uh, tonight, today, who knows what time it is when you're listening. <laughs> um, I have a yoga teacher named Will Dupree, and I want you to check him out on his website, Will, W-I-L-L, Dupree, D-U-P-R-E-Y.com. And Will's a really awesome yoga teacher, an amazing yoga teacher. I've had the privilege of hosting him here at Native Yoga Center in Juneau, I believe. First time was around about 2009. And then there was an additional visit that he made after that and when he was living in Miami. And uh, I was just really blown away on the first time I got a chance to practice with Will because he's got an incredible grasp of the yoga philosophy. He's done an a lot of study and he's really traveled around and checked out a lot of different angles that yoga can go down different paths and can speak about it in a way that I find I get really inspired and excited to practice. So, um, he also is joining us from in Malaysia. So we got a 12 hour time difference and we are operating through the Wi-Fi. So, you know, thank you for being patient with maybe not the best sound quality in the world, but I believe that the real quality comes through in the actual conversation and some of the technological sides, you know, we just let that slide. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, let's get started here. Here we go. Will Dupree. Uh, Will, you're here. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I, we are on the other sides of the world right now, so it took us a little time to figure out our time. We're about 12 hours apart here, so um, you're over in Malaysia. Can you tell me a little bit what Malaysia is like? Yeah, in a nutshell, um, let's see, Malaysia is, uh, if you like food, then you'll definitely love Malaysia. <laughs> I mean, a lot of... <laughs> Malaysia is definitely motivated by food, but, you know, Malaysia is very interesting, I think, in a lot of other ways, too, just, you know, being a, um, you know, growing up in the U.S. like most of my life, I mean, I, I think it's interesting in that way just to see, I mean, one of the beauties of travel, I think, in general for most people is that you get to see other cultures and see how people think and see how people um, sort of navigate their lives or deal with you know, stresses, tensions, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, Malaysia is a really beautiful place in the sense that it is a real uh, interesting uh, conglomeration of different um, ethnic groups for many, 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 many years coming together. And that essentially is what makes someone Malaysian. So, just as much as someone could be, you know, from the land here, and you know, maybe their ancestors are also are partially like Indian, they could also be Portuguese and English, and be considered Malaysian. So, you know, you have a lot of a, a variety of, of people and things that come with it in this area and they beautifully blend together. But Malaysia is a wonderful place and people are very, very um, 
at their very uh, amazing year. Um, so it's a great place to be. As far as like, you know, landscape or topography, I mean, it is uh, a peninsula, which is, you know, on its outskirts, it has uh, mountains and, you know, you have ocean on both sides and uh, connects to Thailand. So about, I know a lot of people don't really know much about Malaysia, except for like, you know, the, the recent um, uh, large embezzlement scam. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it basically runs into Thailand as a border and then Singapore, which used to be part of Malaysia, um, is in its south. So, and then all around you, you have, you know, the Philippines and Vietnam. And then if you go north, you're in Korea and Japan and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. South is Australia. Nice. So it sits in a really beautiful place in, in ordinary times where you can just hop on a plane and in a couple hours you're in. You can be multiple different uh, destinations. But it's uh, quite beautiful in that sense because you're dealing with old jungle growth, uh, yeah. mountains, and yeah. uh, a lot of really interesting things. Um, I mean, Malaysians might think a little bit differently about that, and we could argue, you know, architecture in Malaysia, but that's not what you know, Malaysia is known for. <laughs> um, so you have to have to take the beauty of other things uh, when you see them, but you know, it's a very beautiful uh, place to be. That's awesome. Are, are you in a relative city environment? Are you in a country like mountainous environment or, you know, like a junk, like you said, jungle environment? Does it feel like it all blends together? Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, like I am in uh, Kuala Lumpur or, you know, people call it KL. And so, um, I'm not in the downtown area, but I'm definitely in the city. And as I look out my window, I can see, you know, big buildings and stuff like that. And there's actually a massive construction project going on. But everything is kind of in, you know, in between it is you could, you could see still the landscape of the hills and, you know, Mm -hmm. jungle and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So it does, um, it does give you that like, like, even that could be a reprieve. Um, you know, I'm mm. late a little short on having parks, but there are definitely, you can scout them out and find like, you know, really nice places to walk and actually get into nature. It's not complicated to do. Nice. You know, things I used to do when I was, when I was younger, even growing up in Vermont, you know, you can get into like, more like hills here. You have to kind of travel a little bit because of the mountains. And the mountains obviously are very different, but you can, you know, very much like walk rivers and, you know, swimming streams and all that kind of stuff. Not in the city per se, yeah. but, you know, it yeah. is accessible. So it's a good place to be in nature, actually. Oh. I think a lot of people in Malaysia are finding that out now because right now everything is so internal for the, uh, for COVID that people are really exploring Malaysia again and, like, having a re-excitement from, you know, nice. where they are, which is really have you have you been there since uh, this year? Since uh, like the beginning of like say fe- like Feb March when when all this started going down and and what um what is the, do have you guys done any lockdowns there? What, what to what degree is Malaysia uh, processing all this? Yeah, it's uh, I, it's uh, I usually am here for like two, maybe three months, and then I you know, travel back to the U.S. to I still work a lot physically, or I used to work a lot physically in the U.S., So, mm-hmm. and I would go there also to see my daughter and spend you know, chunks of time with her, so it's kind of doing more of like a two, three months here, and then like a month or two there, and, you know, and then coming back and forth. So the last time I left the U.S. was late January or February, I arrived mm-hmm. here, and I have not been able to. Yeah. I mean, I can't leave, obviously, because yeah. the um, the tricky part is I'm sort of in between having my uh, tourist visa and having uh, a resident visa pass. So if I leave now, there is no 
uh, guarantee that, you know, I'll be able to get back in the country. So I'm kind gotcha. of waiting on that. But, um, yeah, I've been on lockdown since March here. Mm. And when they initiated lockdown, it was, um, you know, you can only go outside for uh, essentials, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, whatever those essentials were deemed at the time, which was mostly like groceries or pharmacy. Yeah. Um, one person per car, um, and you could not travel more than 10 kilometers of where your residence was. Wow. Wow. So that was, that was the initial, that was the initial lockdown. And that was, you know, uh, I think a very similar lockdown to a lot of countries that you yep. know, dealt with like SARS and MERS and stuff like that. So they're very much on it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I depends how you look at it, you know, if we ask someone in the United States what that is, and I think that we have different answers, but yeah, that's how they took it. It was very, it was, it was very, uh, quickly implemented. Um, I was actually speaking with one of my friends here yesterday, which I thought was really cool. Um, it blends into the story a little bit is that as soon as this happened, you start getting messages on your, on your phone. So every day, depending on what's going on, you get an update and the update is a text message from the government. It tells you like what the provisions are and what you're you know supposed to be following and what the rules are. And, Mm. And I think it was actually given cases too at, at the at, at the time because they were trying they were working on tracking the clusters before they put out the data um, on you know where the clusters started and things like that. So what they did, which I think is really amazing, is they quickly like made a hospital where they could send people. Um, they weren't. I they're telling people to stay at home. They're actually telling people, if you're sick, please come to this location to be tested, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna you know put you in this particular place and, you know, start the quarantine process quite early. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, health professionals were using like PPE suits actually, which is, I believe Malaysia is one of the first places that started using them. And then everyone else kind of fell into, into place. So uh, the health workers here weren't like affected as largely as like we're seeing other places because we had all these like, you know, things uh, wow. at play. So you look at your phone, you know, and where it says, wherever it says, like AT&T, Verizon, or T-Mobile, it would say, stay at home in that little section there, kind of like a little banner, right? And then every day you get your, you know, what you could do and cannot do. Wow. So I think that the, res- the response is quite rapid, you know, it's really quick. Um, and, you know, and everything was done like on a month to month basis, you know, for one month to one month. And then at some point they were like, listen, you know, for two months we're going to have to do this. And then they light, would lighten certain things like, you know, two people per car, two people at the grocery store, um, you know, try to avoid like no kids at the, at, yeah. at these stores because, you know, they run around and stuff like that. I just to see what would happen and monitor it. And so, you know, we've had like a little over 9,000 cases here and like about 127 deaths only in Malaysia mm. for, you know, references about a little bit smaller than California mm-hmm. uh, or about the size of California and the population is slightly in between California and New York population. Wow. So it's pretty, you know, populous in that sense. Yeah. Um, it's a dry, definitely a driving country. Like, you know, you can't take the trains and stuff, but it's not that's okay. Um, you know, certain cities are walkable, but overall, a lot of people driving Malaysia is pretty uh, um, populated by cars in that sense. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, the government was on it right away. So I think that, you know, the, the sort of confidence behind the government for people, and again, we're getting into ideology of people, 
um, you know, that they have at least the faith that the government's going to do the right thing and, and help people out in that sense. So I think that, you know, there's, you know, there's a very different feeling than, let's say, what was happening here um, than when I was talking to, you know, friends and family back home in the United States of what yeah. was happening. Right. Um, and not just like, you know, I'm not talking just about like, you know, New York. I have a lot of friends in New York when New York was blowing up or when Florida was going through its things, but just, just sort of, just sort of like in general, like what people were feeling, I guess. Right. So yeah, man, I, I think they did a really job with it. Yeah. That's really interesting to hear, I guess, like what, like what you said in terms of having already gone through these sort of outbreaks in the past and, and cultivating a, um, a plan of action and implementing it really quick. That's where I feel that's where we're going to maybe be able to improve over here and back in the, or in the States where maybe through this first experience that will, will hopefully garnish a lot of knowledge and information and then just be a little bit more. um, We'll just, we'll just take that and move forward and somehow get better. That's kind of my hopes. (laughs) That's my, that's my, uh, my 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 good intent, you know, my hope for what what comes out of this. Yeah, it's really interesting because you know you're dealing with some level of you know compliance, obviously, right? And compliance, yeah. like yeah. you know, being uh, still parallel to you know whatever freedom, let's say, right, yeah. or your right to freely do what you choose to do. Um, I when you're looking at you know U.S culture specifically but um and there's a lot of you know i guess and, and there's rightfully so like i think there's people having feelings towards slippery slopes like you know putting on a mask uh, putting on a mask like automatically leads to you know everyone getting a vaccination right um right. so i think that you're running you know like that scenario or that thought process um i you don't see it existing as much in other places right as a as part of the group's consciousness. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, um, but you know, it's it's very interesting to be, uh, you know, a someone who is you know born and raised in the United States, and to really like be outside of the United States and sort of really look at the U.S. psyche mm-hmm. right now and and what this is doing to it, you know, and and then look at other places too, you know. I mean, nothing is perfect. Right. But just really looking at all these different places, and in no way am I saying, you know, I don't like the United States. That's not what I'm saying. I hear you, man. It's just, uh, it's for for as a as an interest in you know, not just cultures but people. Um, it's interesting to see how we all think in very you know particular ways based on our you know country of origin and or you know environment, if you will. Um, that's that's a great point, Will. And I mean, I, I feel like I want to also make the introduction for all of our listeners to um, so that everyone's familiar with that. You've been teaching, practicing and teaching yoga for a really long time now. Uh, we had the pleasure of hosting you here in Juno Beach um, back in around about 2009 and then a second time a few years after that. It's been a, it's been a while since you and I've had a chance to chat, but I'm really excited to, to to have this opportunity, and I, I feel like I know I have a, a short amount of time with you, and and I have a ton of questions. And right away, it's making me think about how 
Um, one thing I've really loved listening to your take on Hatha Yoga and Raja Yoga and the philosophical components of yoga and to, to help our listeners get an idea of maybe where your practice is at in terms of how you've transitioned from, like, how, is, how has your yoga practice evolved and where are you today? <laughs> Hopefully that's, that's not too broad question. of a question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, I was thinking more about, like, you know, we think about evolution of our practice, but sometimes it seems almost like, you know, your, 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 your process is going backwards, you know, not, not necessarily always forward. Mm. Um, and I don't mean, like, you know, you stop practicing yoga, but it's funny that you say that. I was, woke up this morning, I had an email from one of my students from New York a long time ago, practice with me. He's like, I remember when we were in uh, class, uh, you know, I used to do Utkatasana for like 10 minutes long. And then I was like, dot, dot, dot. Was that, was that real or did I imagine it? You know, like, no, that was, that was definitely real. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, for me, like, how I, I started yoga quite young and it, I didn't know it was really yoga. I was just very interested in uh, meditation and um, I guess what we consider pranayama um, classically. I was interested in energy in the body. Um, and a lot of times I thought it was controlled by the breath of your mind. Um, and this was very, very informal. I did have parents that were yogis, but I had a very understanding parents mm. like, you know, we're not the kind of parents that are like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm meditating. And they're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was not like, uh, uh, what, why do you do that every day? Uh -huh. Where did you learn that uh -huh. from? So I'd say they're pretty, they're pretty like, you know, hands off and really, you know, sort of let us explore things. And so um, I was always very interested in energy and I, I felt it was connected to your breathing and to your ability to control your mind. And that was, you know, from, uh, from youth, and I don't know, it could be from American TV, growing up watching, you know, Kung Fu or Ninja stuff or whatever, <laughs> but I wasn't necessarily doing those types of, you know, you know, karate exercises. It was more, for me, it was about all the other, other stuff. Yeah. So I guess when I got to college is when I really, um, I really got into, uh, I took a class on like yoga, uh, massage and meditation. And I didn't really like the yoga asana part, you know, it was like, honestly, like stretching one leg away from your arm. And, <laughs> and um, I was more into the meditating. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of kept, you know, sticking with that. And then um, it wasn't until I got to New York, like past college, that I stumbled into a, a you know, official yoga studio. And I was doing, you know, karma work or work exchange, um, as many people do. And I was doing it for a couple of months. Um, I was transitioning between jobs. I was getting ready to go to grad school. And then um, the, the owner was, one of the owners, was two owners, said, you know, you should really start taking the classes. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. So I went to class. And I couldn't walk afterwards, you know. It was like really, <laughs> it like crippled me for like a couple of weeks because I thought I was going to do this, you know, kind of laying on the floor and stretching my right arm away from my left arm thing. Yeah. And at the, at the time, this was like, a, you know, this was like vinyasa was was largely taught in the United, United States based on the Ashtanga Yoga methodology. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you you practice Ashtanga Yoga, and 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 there, and you know, it's not necessarily a simple practice. Mm -hmm. But when you take like a vinyasa class that's 
based on trying to execute the Ashtanga Yoga series, but also making it challenging. Mm. Sometimes those classes are like, you know, and I have to say this, physically more difficult than actually doing the Ashtanga Yoga system. <laughs> yeah. So you walk out of here and you're like, you know, you're like, ah, you know, so I was like really, really just physically dead at that time. But something happened to me at that, at that moment when I was, when I was uh, either leaving the class or kind of laying in Shavasana or whatever it was. And it was, that was the time where I, I really like something just told me like, oh, I want to do, this is what I want to do. Uh-huh. I want to, I want to teach yoga. So um, quickly after I kind of, you know, exhausted these teachers' resources, and they were telling me, you know, you really go, you really need to go and see this teacher. You have to go see this teacher. Like, you know, I was very reluctant about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like any of, you know, the kirtan stuff or any of that kind of, you know, at the time I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> and so finally I went to see this teacher, and the first thing that he did was started chanting mantras, and I was like, oh, God, in my head, it's so <laughs> terrible. Um, and, I, and I was a good student, so I started to sing what he sang, you know, it's like he said something, and it was a typical call and response, and I said it back. And when I said it back, something really fascinating happened. It was like, oh, I actually like began to understand what yoga was. Uh-huh. And then wonderfully, also, he also did everything else, you know, like all the other postures and all the breathing techniques and, you know, all, all kinds of things that I've never even heard of. And it kind of linked everything together. It was like, oh, in yoga, there's breathing and yoga, there's meditation. Uh-huh. That's amazing because these things that I had been interested in since my youth. And um, that's how I met my first guru, Dharma Mitra. And uh-huh. so I used to draw a lot on that time with him and, you know, time that I used to spend with him alone, just really talking about uh, the energetic systems and doing the practices. And um, so I think that, you know, when I was initiated with him, I was a very serious student and I used to practice, you know, two, three times a day in the morning and the night and the afternoon and follow the, you know, regimen that was laid out uh, according to pranayama and meditation and Deepika and I would practice as much stuff as I could remember from, from him because shortly after I met him, like a year later, I moved to Los Angeles. Mm. And um, I went all around Los Angeles, tried to practice with all these celebrity teachers, but, um, you know, for me, it kind of fell short. And so what I did is practice my living room nonstop. And then um, after a while, I had met a friend who um, at the time was a senior Anasara student. And, you know, he and I used to practice with a bunch of people in, in Los Angeles. So it was really, really awesome. Um, and, you know, yoga, is, yoga community, once you get into it, is quite small. And, you know, they kind of like, you know, those relationships in New York and L.A. sort of led me to all the other relationships that I had. Mm. So I would say like when I was first practicing yoga, it was, it was, it was always, um, there's always physical components to it, but there's always highly energetic uh, components to it as well. Mm. Um, where I was always practicing, you know, I was always doing japa, I was always doing some form of uh, mantra meditation, um, pranayama, whether it was breathing that exercises or kriyas or, you know, uh, bandhas, mudras, etc. Um, and those things stayed for a, a long period of time. And actually, I, I didn't really, you know, want to be sort of known as a teacher for doing all these physical postures, but definitely that's how, you know, my, you know, quote unquote career started in mm-hmm. yoga. And my practice was that way. I was always really, you know, pushing myself to do it. You know, I spent like a good six months, like looking at this chart that, you know, 
Dharma made until like you know two called the poses mm-hmm. um, on the chart. You know, and, and it wasn't like a I don't know. My motivation behind it was very different. It wasn't like I was trying to do handstands. I was trying to listen to my teacher, and I was doing the postures more as if they were like mudras, you know, mm-hmm. like really trying to feel what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once I really understood that, um, my emphasis on asana as a practice sort of changed a lot, and it became a lot more, uh, it widened with other things. Mm. Um so it, it's not that I, it moved. It's not that I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I don't like asanas evil. Um, I never had that type of repulsion towards you know certain practices. But it was just that I found, you know, keeping the mixture that I originally was introduced to a little bit lighter with some of the physical things, and a little bit more um, intense with some of the energetic things. I was getting a lot different results than what I was mm. seeing. Um, mm. Or, or or feel like what people were talking about in the in the yoga practices themselves. Um, so that led me into further investigation as to like what is yoga. Um, and so I read a lot. You know, I read a lot, and I talked to my teacher a lot. And uh, along the way, I had you know partial live-in studies with you know Siddha medicine people, and I chanted you know mantras with you know Jayashri, who you also know. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, Narsimha and studied philosophy with them and the late Namadeva who was Thomas Ashley Quran I studied Shakti Mantras with him and um, I did teacher training with Kofi Boucher who's like one of uh, um, Iyengar students uh, in Santa Cruz and I studied a lot of different varieties of yoga to really try to understand what um, what was happening in mm-hmm. that you know, in the minds of all these other people, not just like from their guru perspective, but what happens when they like moved away from it, right? Because there's a there's a point where like the teacher sort of like really moves away from the, the uh, this teacher and student like move away from each other, right? They they even talk about that, you know, the guru to see our relationship it tightens as it lightens, so they become more closely, you know, you know uh, connected to one another but their time together becomes less and less and less. So I was very interested in what that meant mm. because, you know, Dharma always gave that to me. He would always you know, tell me, like, oh, your postures are so amazing or, you know, don't bother coming to class. Or if I did come to class, people were, were uh, he was telling people to, like, practice the way I practice. And honestly, I didn't really like that attention. That wasn't yeah. for me. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, you know, that's not who I am as a, as uh-huh. a, as a person. Like, uh-huh. I'm much more interested in, like, seeing how it works and feeling it for myself. So as a teacher, like, I think that's really what, um, even when I was really getting into the physical stuff, that's what I was always trying to, you know, instill in the student is like, this is how, um, I've experienced these things. And it, they may, they may or may not work for you. You know, somewhere you're on the spectrum of, of being, you know, physical things create some stimuli or energetic things create some stimuli. And some people have a little bit of both, and some people lean more towards one or the other. So, you know, in my in my teachings, I you know I definitely try to like offer those particular things. Uh, but I think like most people were interested in those things, and were of my age uh, in in the career of yoga. A yeah. lot of times, people tell you, "Well, you know, the asanas I get them in the door, you know." So, when's the last 
time, you know, someone said to you, I got really into yoga because someone was talking about the yamas and the yamas. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you run it. Yeah. You run into those issues, which is, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, you know, question to ask because when you're young and on your, um, career of yoga, you know, we would go to like Vedanta temples and you know, see what like was going on mm-hmm. with Pramahansa Yogananda, the SRF places, or you know, try to go to, um, you know, these different, uh, thinkers as well, you know, part of like the path is, you know, young yogis and you know, talking to box yogis and, you know, the, you know, Hare Krishna schools and, you know, all over the place, you're just trying to really like, you know, look at like how these people have taken these journeys and how the journeys change. You know, like you know, my people before me were traveling and they're looking for some type of knowledge, you know, and my generation, I think, was more looking at the physical aspect of it, you know, when it comes to yoga. Um, and that was through the physical that they got to these other things. So I think as a teacher, I've just, it's, that's such a difficult question to answer, Todd. Honestly, oh man! But you did a great. I try, I, yeah, that, that I try was... to focus a lot on all these pieces, but like <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I can't say. For instance, that like you know, my typical classes. Um, yeah, I do this. I do this. I do this. Yeah. I do this. You know, I yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I just teach only pranayama. Uh-huh. Sometimes I talk about texts until you know I'm I can't talk anymore. I don't know. You know, it really depends. Well, you know, actually, Will, as you were chatting right now. Um, I caught myself like I, I, I have a big smile on my face because I feel like following you on your journey and, and I had a chance personally to, to kind of hear you give me a few of those pieces before when I met you. And I'm just really excited for our listeners to have that, have that, have the chance to get to know you and to hear kind of that, that um, streamlined experience of having that real inquisitive nature and and that you really kind of went for it and looked at everything and or we could say present tense like you're you're, we're wanting to look at everything you know we're wanting to check it out and that's like such a huge part of it and that's something that I really appreciate about your connection to yoga because I mean even like because because it's not often that I meet people it's rare that I meet people that have that go and check out the SRF temple, go and hang out with the Hare Krishnas, travel to um, learn about uh, pranayama and then try all different meditation techniques. And um, so on that note, Will, that's where I find I love listening to you talk because it, I'm, I'm like, dude, somebody's stoked about yoga. I love it. <laughs> so man, I, I really appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Um, Something that I remember asking uh, you in the past because I was looking for clarification uh, around we have the word. Can you, let me just keep it real simple and let you do the talking. Can you, uh, in a nutshell, define hatha yoga? Oh yeah. So <laughs> is a nutshell. I don't know if nutshell is the right word to use, but can you can you help us understand hatha yoga? That's something I feel like you've really kind of brought a little bit of light on the subject for me. So I, I'd love to hear what you, you know, to help educate the listeners as to what is Hatha Yoga? Yeah, I know, right? That's the famous question. You know, <laughs> I guess the, the, the famous answer is that, you know, anything physical that manipulates the body. But um, it's, it's such a, you know, it's such a, such a interesting 
and small thing at the same time, right? We're looking at just mm. physical mastery of the body because you know you 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 know your teachers in some way lead all the to my knowledge of your practice. I'm sure you have other teachers as well, but they you know lead all the way to Krishnamacharya. And Krishnamacharya was you know uh, apparently able to stop his own heart beating mm. for five minutes. So if we consider that hatha yoga, then you know, are we, are any of us the yogis, like, can right. we actually really control the physical, you know, uh, bio systems of our body? You know, Iyengar used to talk about being able to make your skin move, which I can totally get behind that, you know, you could, um, but that's very interesting to me, you know, that was actually something that was very interesting to me as, mm. um, mm. as an earlier student. But, um, you know, when we look at text, Hatha Yoga Hatha is Hatha Vidya, uh, and almost all of them talk about that, you know, through this physical uh, knowledge, information, or intelligence, whatever we want to call it, that we um, we get to the mind. Mm-hmm. You know, we get to Raja Yoga. So Hatha Yoga is a subset of Raja Yoga. Um, some people can say that, you know, it comes from Siddha or Tantra or whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, we see this over and over again, you know, to, to my knowledge, and I could be completely wrong, is that we always had this, this construct of, of karma and kiana conduct. So it was always like physical and mental. You know, you see this in the mm-hmm. Gita, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if one could go to kiana yoga, then they go. But if they can't, they do it through the body. So karma is the way to do it, you know. And, and karma, and, you know, karma yoga is not just the body itself, but it's also like, the ability to perform the rituals to move through the body, right? So mm. to bring the energy in. It's also intertwined, but the more, I guess the more I see yoga now, I see it more as like, you know, there's a physical aspect of it, which we might even call living. Mm. And then there's the other part of it, which is not, it's not the absence of living. It's more like when we're not trying to attain and we're realizing mm. that, you know, we're, we're not necessarily influenced the, the living. So I, I tend to look at like Hatha Yoga now. It's really funny. I mean, maybe maybe it's only funny to me, but <laughs> it's like when we actually it's it's like when we actually physically manipulate something and we physically manipulate stuff because we spend too much time like trying to apprehend or understand. Mm. So you know, if we like, if I physically do like a mudra or bandha or an asana, uh, hopefully I I don't have to worry about you know drishti or all these things that you learn as a as a beginner student, right? Because they come naturally and you don't worry about your breathing because your breathing comes naturally. The posture actually can make you breathe in a particular way anyway. So if I do this physical thing in, in a particular way, then what's the goal? You know, the goal is that I, I, I forget that I'm doing it because it brings me to a, a state or a condition or a concentration or a pratyahar or whatever it may be. And it starts to lead me on the way to, to, you know, to this other thing, which is, you know, a concentrated state of, of non-application or mm. what we call dhyana, right? Mm. So to me, like the Hatha part is everything and, you know, just using the eight limb system, which is, you know, not, um, there are six limb systems and other systems, but it's everything that brings you right up to where, where, where dharana is about to make it jump to dhyana. Mm. Right, because everything at that point has been some level of physical manipulation or application, and when you get into meditation, it's when you're no longer doing the application. Right, mm-hmm. you're sitting, okay. sure, 
Yeah. Well, you're not. You don't need the. You don't need the technique to be in meditation. The meditation is taking itself over. So I don't. I, I mean, I don't um, know. You know, for most people, if the mind is still trying to stay apparent there, but I see you see it in small things. You know, like for instance, we see that transition. Um, even in something as simple as doing, you know, Warrior Two, and the teacher's telling you to breathe all the time, and mm. then all of a sudden you're. You know, your you you your mind chimes in and says, "Oh my God, I'm not breathing." And you start doing your best, Ujjayi. You're like, ah, you know, doing all that <laughs> that stuff. But to me, that's like actually the effect of Hatha Yoga is that you have you've done something, a posture, you're steadying your body, you're listening to your breathing, and then you went somewhere. You know, you start your mm-hmm. your senses started to not apprehend, and then. You know, out of nowhere, your mind comes in and says, oh, you know, you're doing that wrong. You should be breathing really loud because that's what your teacher's telling you to do. Or that's what you think you should be doing. Or, you know, that's what everyone else is doing. So, um, yeah, for me, Hatha Yoga is very much about the idea that I'm actually using something by force, uh, you know, to strike or to pierce um, with a a beneficial energy, Mm -hmm. which we could say is like a weapon, a tool. And then when that happens, um, ideally it would lead you into the mind. You'll have this experience. And so the real question for me is not, you know, is not like how many sort of postures you have to do, but which one, which practices actually take you into that state mm. so that you can, you know, continue to absorb what you've just uh, cultivated, right? Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the best way I would. I would describe Hatha Yoga as it's, it's an application or an effort that we use in a particular way to invoke a state of non-apprehending, right? Excellent, so, excellent. Yeah. That's an insightful answer. I appreciate that. And one of the one of the texts that I, I keep trying to read is the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And yeah. I remember at one point going to a, uh, a teacher who he kind of went on a little bit of a rant that, um, you know, I go into these yoga studios around the country and they sell the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And this book is completely uh, inappropriate for this culture and our society because of some of the practices that they do are so extreme. You wouldn't need to do that. So almost like wanting to like discard it. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts regarding because I know that you've delved deeply into the study slash reading slash practice and appreciation for the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Can you give me a little bit of your thoughts on, on um, the, some of the really intense practices and are, do you feel like they're appropriate for today's world? Yeah, it's a, it, you know, that's definitely my uh, first love, I guess, right. in yoga was the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And I still, you know, reference it a lot, you know, but also, um, you know, how's the surrounding text for, for me, I think it's very difficult to look at, um, you know, e- e- any type of modern text, um, you know, the Pisuka or, you know, Duranda Samita or mm. Patanjali's aphorisms or whatever, without actually taking into account like the thousands of years of for it because yeah. those things influence all these texts. I mean, yeah. you know, we start in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika with the first part of it is like what Sri Adinasa Namaste Yoga Vidya. So it tells you right away that you're learning Hatha Vidya and that Sri Adinasa is the person who is 
giving you this information. You know, mm-hmm. Sri first of the, is the person who was able to manipulate Shakti. That's where you get the idea of Kundalini. Adi is first, and Nata is one of the kinds. So Sri Adinata, who we also call Shiva, is the first of this person to expel yoga. And what it does is it leads you to Hatha Vidya, the knowledge of Hatha Yoga, and that takes you later on as we get into them, into Raja Yoga, etc. So, you know, but it also does talk about those practices that this particular, you know, teacher talked about, you know, the uh, Bajroli and all these things and mm-hmm. pulling, you know, uh, fluids in through the urethra and, mm-hmm. you know, all these, uh, uh, you know, different types of practices, which, you know, if you're reading it, if you're reading a text and you're looking at a text and you're saying, you know, this is what it's going to do and I'm going to do that, then, you know, it, it's going to be really, um, it's going to be an interesting road for the person who is doing that. You know, it really is because, yeah. you know, these things are meant to be sort of like studied with someone, you know? So like, yeah. I guess the overall question is like, you know, should we, should we burn the hot yoga? Deepika? Or like, let's look at like even, you know, Patanjali's yoga sutras. Like, is that yeah. appropriate for someone who is a brand new yogi? Yeah. Because yeah. we tend to like, we were tend to talk, be taught about, Patanjali Yoga Sutras in a classroom setting, and the first thing people talk about is the eight limbs. Yeah. You know, they don't talk about like in the in the first sutra and the first pada. It says, you know, hey, let's let's sort of let this uh, process of yoga unfold, if you will, right? And so, what does that mean when we really look at it? It means that potentially that the student has tried other methodologies in their life to sort of move through a vidya or some type of suffering, right? Because mm-hmm. It comes with all the other stuff, you know, like Upanishads and Vedas and Aranyakas and Samhitas, where people were were looking at what the relationship of this witness inside of you had with the physical body and with consciousness. So by the time it gets to Patanjali, Patanjali is, you know, really talking about the mind, you know, Raja Yoga, really specifically. And I look at that first you know, uh, sutra as being like someone who's tried through other methodologies, even, uh, maybe even through other yoga thoughts of how to like work with this, um, avidya, let's say, or ignorance mm. of the mind because they're, they're basically tired of suffering. Mm. And the Pradipika doesn't, doesn't work that way. It's very practical. Uh-huh. Even says, you know, you're, Asana is done first because it's the first accessory, um, but it doesn't list a hundred asanas. It mm-hmm. says that there's 84 of them that, you know, that humankind can do. And these are the 11 that set you up for these four, which you, which you is where really all the energy um, uh, comes. So when I became really interested in, in the Pripika, I started looking at it in relationship to the Durandas Pramita and the Gorakshapaditi uh-huh. and other texts that mention Asana because one of the interesting things about that text is it's one of the only, it's one of the few texts that actually mention a practice to do, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. none of them talk about sun salutations <laughs> or poses at all. Right. And then you have this text that's like, you do this and you do this and you do this and it affects, you know, uh, bile, phlegm, and wind, which is basically vata, pitta, kapha. Mm-hmm. And so you could actually like go really deep into it. And, and that's what, you know, led me to my curiosity about it because it works on a yoga level. It works on a, um, 
you know, on a, a CREA level, um, it talks about state modity, and then simultaneously, like, it has an effect if you chant it as well. Right? So, like, all things that, you know, are in that Sanskrit language do. But um, it, it's very interesting in that sense. But, yeah, if you pick it up and you're like, well, this next thing I'm supposed to do is to, you know, pull fluids into my urethra, then, you know, <laughs> this, this, this is not necessarily something that we're going to um, see as potentially beneficial or as, you know, but it could be. It could be, it could be beneficial, right. potentially be beneficial. Yeah, I think it, one of the difficulties that we have is that we, we tend to like things laid out in, 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 a, in a, um, a Western mind frame, which is that, you know, yoga it consists of these things. It has asana, it has pranayama, it has being nice to people, it has being a vegan, it has being an activist. And those things are all yogis, right? That's what we'll consider yogis just for fun for a moment. Mm-hmm. So if someone is just one of those things, then sometimes a certain group will have a hard time with it. How can you be just an activist and not a, and not practice asana? Right. And then someone will be like, well, how can you be all these other things but you eat meat? Yeah. And so that's, I think, what we really run into is when we get into the Pripika and, and these types of texts, and the, the mind doesn't understand, like, is it possible that, you know, you can reach these states of, you know, awareness by just doing asanas? or by just doing pranayamas, or just by, you know, using something, you know, like contentment or internal reflection. You know, because the, the path of yoga is not as clear as we like to think that it is, that it's, it's quite simple. People practice yoga, or that's physical, or they don't. Mm. I don't think it really works that way. So mm. if we look at the Pradipika as being an incomplete text, it's quite possible that it was a collaboration of other texts, uh, which means that potentially someone was writing it to really solidify the uh, lineage of teacher-student that went all the way through Matsyendra into, you know, apparently um, Shiva, who is the founder of yoga, right? This is yeah. the first yogi was Shiva, essentially. So, um, you know, all texts, I think, have their benefits and minuses, um, you know, including the Yoga Sutras. You know, I was reading actually something recently that I believe James Mallinson wrote that, you know, talked about how Classically, these texts were actually often rewritten. So it's uh, under the assumption that potentially Patanjali actually rewrote a Buddhist text and made it mm. more appropriate to the students who were, you know, yeah. yogi. Does that mean Patanjali is not a great Shiva anymore? I don't think so. <laughs> but at the same time, like, his approach might be missing some things that were um, Buddhist and they might not be fully, you know, embraced by people who are yogis, which we don't see that because usually people, you know, think of Patanjali as the, you know, father of yoga, if you will. Um, but, you know, that statement alone is, is sort of like, you know, a little bit blinded by the fact that yoga has been going on for, you know, thousands of years before Patanjali. That's so, a- you know, you're running into a lot of issues, right? It's like the Gita is older than the Yoga Sutra, the Upanishads are older than that, they talk about yoga. I mean, that's where we get our six lens system from, which predates the Ashtanga Yoga methodology. But, um, you know, it depends on how you look at it. That's a good point, Will, because another element that I always like to think of, too, is like, here we are, I'm sitting in my room, I got my microphone, and we're Bluetoothed in uh, through Wi-Fi while you're on the other side of the, the world, and 
we have this like technology and electricity and all these things going on that like I'm able to ha- have this conversation with you, which I'm, I'm, st- I'm excited for because, you know, to, to have my mind opened up and expanded, like even when you're, you know, you're using a lot of words that, um, had I never done yoga before, like hearing all of these words like Kriyas and Japas and different text names like Bhagavad Gita and Yoga Hatha Yoga Pradipika, someone might be listening that is going, what was just said? Like, what, what was all that? But then as you kind of like slowly start to investigate and you get a piece of the puzzle and these pieces start to fit together and the then then you hear all these words and terms and it starts to make some sort of sense and and that's such a gradual process that takes you know years and years and years another reason why I'm and I really am excited to talk to you because I feel like to be able to like have that many years of uh, study and practice in it that it becomes fluent and fluid the point I wanted to kind of get to is that maybe several thousand years ago when these texts were written and there's no electricity, there's maybe a lamplight, right? And I just try to imagine what life on earth was like prior to all of what's going on now. And sometimes I romanticize it. Sometimes I, I, th- I hear these stories like, we're better now than we ever were. Like <laughs> we have less of the bad things because technology has solved these problems. And, and you're kind of like, I really wonder, but I, I do think when I, when I imagine these yogis sitting around like under the stars and observing constellations and watching the sun and watching the moon and paying attention without all of, I, I'm, I know there had to have been distractions, right? There had to have been, just as many challenges that we face, maybe just on a different level, but there had to be those distractions. And I, but I, I can see where you, you would get into some of these kind of wild exercise that seem wild to us here, but in that time frame, it probably was pretty wild as well, right? Like <laughs> these guys were trying these things that were new and different and then writing about it and experiment, experimenting with it. Um, so I, I definitely agree with you that it has to be taken with the context of several thousand years have transpired since. And now we're looking at it trying to decipher. Um, I guess that's what really blows my mind. And I, and I really think that our conversation, I think we're going to have to have a part two sometime because we haven't even, I haven't even really gotten a chance to like break apart a little bit of what you, <laughs> what you, what you just talked about. And we're kind of getting closer to that one hour mark already. Um, and I feel like a lot of, inf- a lot of information has already kind of come to the listener, which maybe there'll be a good a, a process to digest. Would you be open to me to, to doing another podcast in the future where we could continue talking like this? Absolutely, Todd. Anytime. I really appreciate that. Well, I, I, um, I. It's been a long time, and and I, I'm really excited because I got one of your emails, and I guess I want to uh, alert the listeners too that. Um, well, can you tell us how can we get in contact with you if we want to study with you, practice with you? Um, what are uh, websites slash ways that we can get get uh, connected to you? Yeah, just through my normal, you know, name will dot com. I usually kind of list everything on there. Um, most of my work, honestly, for the last 
I would say 15 years is spent in teacher trainings and not because I'm, uh, you know, I think everyone should do a teacher training. It's just, I've, it's the format that I'm mostly see where I can put together all these things in dedicated periods of time. So I, I look at them as more like, you know, educational programs, but they just happen to fit in the, yeah. you know, guise of yeah. uh, current, uh, credentialing. And I do offer a free class that I, um, I started doing this actually during the lockdown as, you know, a lot of people were kind of going through a lot of different uh, things. So I started offering a free class in March. It's every Sunday here at 7.30 in the morning or nice. uh, 7.30 p.m. your time on Saturday on Zoom. That's also on the site. Um, and I try to keep that going as much as I can. I do mix a combination of these things together. So sometimes uh, we'll get into some interesting postures and all the other stuff. It usually does include things like meditation and, you know, asana and pranayama, mitra bandha, stuff like that. Um, so that is an ongoing regular class. And then other than that, I mean, who knows what's going to happen for everybody, right? So we're trying to do some <laughs> workshops here, here and there and some educational programs. People are trying to scramble to, you know, understand what's going on online. I mean, for some of us like myself who have been teaching online for a while, I think the transition has been a little bit easier, but a lot of people are trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's mostly where I where I do. I, I, most, I try to put all my stuff on the site as best as I can. It's, it's a quite simple site. Um, but also, you know, to, to throw that out there that, you know, on the site is also um, a way to, you know, get in touch with me. Um, so, you know, I'm, I do consider myself a yoga educator. So if people do have questions about things or want to talk about that kind of stuff, like I definitely do a lot of work that way. A lot of my work is actually like one-on-one and in a more, uh, intimate, uh, setting because people are interested in such different things that I, uh, work, you know, probably best that way, I guess. Um, other than that, I try to keep my public teachings as much as possible in the teacher training curriculum. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, it makes more sense the way that, you know, I've been fine tuning it since, you know, for like 15 years to really get it to where it is. Um, in that sense, I'm, I'm an odd perfectionist, I guess. But um, it also yes. like it takes into account like how things are sort of transmitted and how, you know, like you said, how things sink in. Yeah. Nice. Nice. That's cool. Well, it made me kind of think that after some of our uh, practitioners here, listen to this and if they have some questions I'll try to take a little bit of a polling to 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 get some some more together so that the the next time we chat I can direct you know hopefully uh, <laughs> direct the uh some of those questions towards you and once again well I I really really appreciate you and uh and you you being willing to uh, take some time out of your your day to, to speak with us. And I truly wish you well and all your family and there. Uh, I know Thank you're, you. and I, I hopefully uh, next time we're, we're on either side of the world. We get it. We'll get a chance to uh, meet in person again and maybe we'll be really bold and actually give each other a big handshake and just go for it. <laughs> yeah, I think we should. I all think right. we should for sure. <laughs> awesome will man have a have a wonderful uh enjoy your day today and uh and thank you so much yeah thank you you take care now thanks man take care bye-bye Bye. thank you so much for listening to today's episode of native yoga Toddcast. we really appreciate it and we hope you enjoyed Remember that if you'd like to learn more about upcoming classes workshops teacher trainings and our online yoga studio 
all of which you can access at nativeyogacenter.com. Your support is greatly appreciated. Have a wonderful day.